Hello and welcome to Advocate, a podcast channel by ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights, or APHR. On this channel, we're delving into some of the most important human rights and democracy issues affecting Southeast Asia. Earlier series have focused on the threats and harassments faced by opposition MPs in the region, as well as the response of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, to the crisis affecting the Rohingya in Myanmar's Rakhine state. Our previous series, Anatomy of a Coup, took a detailed look at the major actors in the political turmoil currently taking place in Myanmar. And more than a year after the coup took place, sadly many of the concerns raised in that series remain unresolved. Please visit our website, ASEANMP.org, for updates on the Myanmar situation and APHR's continued efforts to address the crisis. Welcome to our fourth series, where we shift focus from Myanmar to look more closely at regional issues in a series we're calling Celebrating Progress. Human rights advocates know all too well just how challenging rights work can be, here in Southeast Asia and globally. In addition to a host of rights-abusing actors targeting those expressing dissent, rights defenders often face what can sometimes feel like a constant losing battle. Advocacy often begins with the odds stacked against them, with governments undemocratically introducing oppressive laws and policies, or pushing aside or even watering down legislation that is progressive. Yet look closely, and positive changes are occurring in the human rights sphere, including in Southeast Asia. In this series, we'll shed light on those successes and speak to some of those who've been working to advance human rights across the region. Issues we'll look at include a new, albeit limited, abortion law in Thailand, progress on LGBTQ plus rights in some Southeast Asian countries, a rise in youth-led movements, as well as accountability measures in the battle to combat climate change. For this episode, we turn our attention to the Philippines. say the number of people who've died after a super typhoon hit last week has risen to more than 375. The Red Cross says it's carnage in many areas with no power, no communications and very little water. Uh, Let's take you to the Philippines now where the number of people who have died after a super typhoon hit last week has risen to more than 375. Uh, We've heard from the Red Cross saying it is carnage in many areas, no power, no communication, very little water. Just a few months ago, in mid-December 2021, Typhoon Rai swept through the southern Philippines at speeds of more than 200 kilometres per hour. The typhoon, known locally as Odette, crossed the archipelago, dissipating near the island of Palawan in the west. By that time, more than 400 people had been killed. Almost a million and a half homes were destroyed, and 200,000 people were displaced. The storm caused 250 million US dollars in agricultural damages, according to OCHA, the UN's humanitarian agency. A year earlier, Typhoon Goni had hit the country, killing dozens and displacing more than 300,000. Thousands of hectares of land were destroyed, including high-value crops such as rice and corn. In 2013, Typhoon Haiyan, one of the deadliest ever recorded, decimated large parts of the country, killing more than 6,000 Filipinos. The typhoon brought with it seven-metre-high storm surges, and entire cities were destroyed. About 11 million people were affected, and thousands left homeless. Almost a decade later, 
Many people remain missing as a result of the storm. These extreme weather events and others like them have been directly linked to climate change. And the Philippines, a cluster of thousands of islands exposed to the Pacific Ocean, has been described as, quote, a poster child for the impacts of climate change. Things could well get worse in the future, with threats including rising sea levels, declining rice yields, water shortages and more intense droughts. A study by the Asian Development Bank says the country could lose 6% of its GDP annually by the year 2100 if the impacts of climate change are not addressed. Amid this gloomy outlook, however, there is some cause for optimism in the battle to combat climate change, with the prospects of at least some form of accountability appearing on the horizon. In a landmark case in 2019, the Commission on Human Rights of the Philippines announced that 47 of the largest fuel and cement companies, known as carbon majors, can be found legally and morally liable for human rights harms to Filipinos resulting from climate change. The companies include Shell, ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP and Total, among others. The case is officially called the Climate Change and Human Rights Inquiry in the Philippines, and it's being billed as the world's first investigation into corporate responsibility for the climate crisis. It was launched after civil society groups and people impacted by typhoons filed a complaint before the Commission in September 2015, calling for an investigation into the possible human rights violations of the carbon measures resulting from climate change. Petitioners and climate advocates are still awaiting the outcome of the inquiry, but in January 2022, APHR spoke with two figures closely involved in the campaign to understand its background what they hope will be achieved, including looking beyond the legal ramifications and what lessons can be learned moving forward. We were joined on Zoom by Attorney Jerti, an environmental attorney who was involved in filing the case, and Leah B. Guerrero, the Philippines Country Director for Greenpeace, an organisation that is heavily involved in the campaign. Attorney Jerti started by speaking about the background to the case. The proceeding is called the National Inquiry on Climate Change. And it started in 2015 when a petition was filed led by Greenpeace and uh, many other NGOs and individuals on the basis of um, a scientific study which identified that a group of private corporations have contributed substantially to the greenhouse gas emissions in the world. And therefore, there was a need to exact accountability from these corporations because the basis was the greenhouse gas emissions, as you know, resulted to climate change and that has severely affected several communities around the world and most especially the Philippines, which is very vulnerable to the adverse impacts of climate change. And therefore, the human rights aspect of the adverse effects of climate change have been manifested in the way that people have been displaced, the right to food, the right to health, the right to survival, the right to be able to protect their ancestral domains and their waters. And that is clearly well within the realm of human rights. So one could say, and we are proud to say that this is a novel undertaking because while it may not be before a court of law, but it is an attempt to actually call the attention of the government, including the group called Carbon Majors, and also the citizens of the Philippines and the world, that a vulnerable country like the Philippines and its citizens can no longer keep quiet and instead assert their human rights. Because if they will not do so, 
the, the, the situation will aggravate and those who are accountable and liable will continue their business as usual operations. So then since 2015, it took a while to be able to get the case rolling while it is administrative. So we had the hearings in 2018 and we did have a lot of uh, witnesses. We had experts from all over the world and we had also community witnesses, uh, experts on biodiversity, health, agriculture, and then communities themselves, fisher folk leaders, labor leaders, jeepney drivers, indigenous peoples, women and youth and victims of uh, typhoons. And we were able to complete the submission of all those exhibits and the memorandum actually in 2019. So we were actually hoping that by 2020, the Commission on Human Rights would have already issued its uh, resolution. Unfortunately, the challenge at the moment is because we're also dealing with some institutional challenges of the commission. I call it that way. You cannot really have full control of, of the situation. So we are waiting that for, again, this is 2022 already. So we filed it in 2015. So that's about, but the submission of the memorandum was 2019. So it's about three years already, almost, yeah, almost three years or you say more than two years, that uh, we have been waiting for the resolution. Leah B. Guerrero from Greenpeace then spoke about why the inquiry has been so important for communities in the Philippines, especially those most directly impacted by climate change. So it was a vehicle for us to really put a human face on the climate discourse, um, because uh, previous to this, climate was, uh, it's very up there, right? In discussions about the science, um, there was hardly any um, human face to it. And the way that this has put a human face is framing everything from a human rights lens. And at that time, when the petition was filed, this, this framing was quite nascent, I think, um, globally. And this may have been one of the first petitions of its kind to assert that uh, people who are impacted by uh, the climate crisis are being violated um, in terms of their um, fundamental rights. Um, And that was, I think, what this whole petition has brought to the spotlight. Um, And that's why the community voice is really what stood out, I think, from all the proceedings. Um, And that was really the intention when Greenpeace, as well as its partners, were looking at how do we highlight how communities are are suffering, right, uh, from climate? How do we put that conversation on the table aside from all the scientific things that people are talking about in the international negotiations? They're just talking about emissions and so on. And aside from putting that... Um, human face to the climate discussion. I think what the other thing that this has brought to the table on climate discourse is really pinpointing responsibility. Because um, when you think about how um, until uh, 2010, maybe the climate discussions were going, it's mostly the the negotiations about are about countries or about their historical emissions and so on. And corporations were largely missing from the picture, but they're the ones that have actually started all the extraction and it's their business model. So to speak. They're complicit to that building of that business model. So that face was missing. And if you put climate in that perspective of human rights, uh, that missing piece um, in the puzzle, which was who is violating that right, um, was put to the fore. And I think that is the value that this brings to communities. Guerrero said that Greenpeace has been working in the Philippines since the 1990s. 
has been closely involved on climate change issues. Much of its early work had focused on coal projects in the country, but began to shift when the situation related to typhoons in the Philippines grew worse and worse. We knew that it was time not to fight little battles, right? There is a big systemic battle. There, there's something bigger, um, something more systemic that needs to be pushed. So that just fell into place with this petition that we submitted. And for countries like the Philippines, as um, Attorney Jersey mentioned earlier, that are always were the poster child of climate impacts from typhoons, specifically, always at the top of the list for risk from climate impacts. It's something that sits closer to how people understand what really climate crisis is about. We then turn back to Attorney Jerti, who spoke about the reasons for the campaign's success, and particularly the importance of getting buy-in from those most directly impacted by climate change, the farmers of the Philippines. The educative value of the campaign, as Leia mentioned, if you give a face to the human rights impact of climate change, which has never been done before. People start to realize that, example, the Typhoon Rai or Typhoon Odette, which hit Palawan severely, and we lost hectares and hectares of our forest. It's it's very, very painful to see our communities with no homes, livelihoods, displaced, you know. And, And therefore, the communities start to understand that it is not simply just uh, the Paris Agreement or international discourse, but it's concrete to every Filipino and to every victim in, in a poor country, you know, a developing country, that the climate crisis is real because it's really survival. And, and therefore, uh, because Greenpeace and its partners um, complemented the campaign with the um, administrative hearings, with social media campaigns, with engaging with local officials uh, because Greenpeace also went to local government units. So that effort to actually reach out and strengthening partnerships, that to me, had an educative value. We need to educate ourselves constantly because we could not understand the science immediately. But then when a poor farmer realizes that either El Nino or La Nina has resulted to a substantial reduction of his income because of climate change. And then this is explained and it actually affects his livelihood and his life. Then every person will start to understand that it is here. It has been here for a long time. And yet accountability and liability mechanisms to pin down on who are responsible is, is severely lacking. As well as engaging with farmers, the role of policymakers, including MPs, is also important, Attorney Jerti said. The government, we do have a Climate Change Act and we have a Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Law and a People Survival Fund, but the enforcement has been very, very weak. So reaching out means you start both. No, It's like top and below. So Greenpeace has campaigners engaging with legislators and also on the local government units level. So we had resolutions from certain local government units saying that it's already climate crisis and we support the effort to do an inquiry. And then just lately, a few weeks ago, uh, because of Typhoon Rai or Odette, the legislator from Bohol was so, well, he was captured by, by the experience and he made a privileged speech 
to reiterate the call for a climate emergency in the Philippines. So that should actually snowball. So we, not, we, not, we need to actually pick up from, from that. And therefore, when we say that it has its own educative value, it will not swim alone without concrete efforts by Greenpeace and its partners and the communities. Now, the role of media is very important because it's not always good just to hear that we suffer typhoons, but it has to be concrete on how you translate it into losses, into cost, and the amount of money that the government has to allocate in addition to COVID. It's really troubling. We are in a crisis, and the last thing we need is to be subjected to further crisis because of climate change. Leah Guerrero then spoke, building on the points made by Attorney Jersey. Yeah, I agree with um, Attorney Jersey. It's the value of, of spreading that information, the educative value of the whole exercise of the petition. Maybe just to take another step back, the litigation, the petition, is not a standalone thing. Um, it was always a campaign. So we call it strategic litigation. So it's part of a strategy where the litigation goes alongside a campaign strategy that aims to get that messages and the actions, of course, that we want from lawmakers, decision makers, etc. So it's part of that big plan to not just win the petition or get get the results that hopefully get the results that uh, we would like to see from the petition, um, but also get action from lawmakers, from the executive branch of the government to put things in place that would support what we're saying throughout this whole exercise of the uh, petition. Um, the Commission on Human Rights, where the petition is lodged, it is a recommendatory body. And what it will do with this petition and is to set out a report that would recommend actions for the national government and also for policymakers. What sort of laws should they make uh, to follow through with what their findings are from this petition? So these are also the same things that we're asking, that we're campaigning for when we lobby, um, when we campaign facing um, local government officials, national government officials, etc. So, uh, for example, it's putting in place measures to ensure that communities are monitored in terms of what impacts they're experiencing on the ground, ensuring that businesses um, having policies in place where businesses can report or should be reporting their footprints are, what how they are affecting um, the rights of people with the business activities that they have. Stepping back a little, she then began talking about why a ruling such as this was important in empowering farmers. When these communities um, that are experiencing climate impacts, um, when you look at how they react to, for example, typhoons, droughts, it's, you know, it's an act of God. It's something that um, we don't have any control of it. Um, it's, it's what happens and it's just our luck because we live here. So it's a kind of a resignation to their lot in life. Right. And with that sort of attitude, it's really disempowering for coastal communities who face typhoons every year, whose houses get uh, destroyed, right? Every year, whose crops, whose whole yield for that season is, you know, uh, destroyed by just. In, in a few hours um, by a super typhoon. And going from that sort of attitude, that sort of uh, mentality uh, towards, I could actually, I, I actually have a chance to hold someone responsible for what's happening to me, 
right, to what's happening to my community. Um, that I think is uh, pretty powerful for communities. And I would say that for the communities we work with who are part of this petition, who have joined us as witnesses, they do have that feeling that they are they are asserting their rights, that they are, they're not just accepting what's happening to them as a natural thing that they can't do anything about. So they now feel that there is something that can be done and I could change how tax um, would affect me um, in the future and also other communities in the country. Uh, I feel that that's um, one really big value that this has brought to the to Filipino communities. One of the other things about this petition is that the way that it's taking on corporations has also helped, I think, in reframing how we look at uh, climate in terms of we're all responsible to um, there are entities that are responsible. So uh, for me, that's a really, really big step um, because um, that's part of how um, climate denial has been framed by corporations, right, um, since the 1960s, that it's we can change the climate if we stop driving, no more cars, take a bike, walk, etc. Um, so that kind of narrative um, is being toppled by that responsibility really rests on the shoulders of corporations. Um, and the way that um, this has opened that box, especially in countries like the Philippines, where previously corporate responsibility on climate change hasn't been talked about and hasn't been talked about in formal venues, where presumably some sort of action, some sort of follow through can happen. This is what it's brought to the table that really pinpointing, not spreading the responsibility, but focusing on a group that has the biggest responsibility and getting the attention of lawmakers on it. So when we started this campaign, um, no lawmaker would would touch it because fossil fuel companies are very, very powerful and they're like part of the economic engine, right? That's, that's how we look at it traditionally. They're part of the economic engine that brings progress, um, quote unquote, to a country. But now there are some lawmakers that are open to the idea and are putting that in their language, um, that big polluters are responsible. And I think that's a very, very uh, big thing um, that it, whenever I hear that from a lawmaker who is supporting it, feel very happy because it's, it's a change um, that has happened also in their perception. This episode of Celebrating Progress was written and produced by me, Oliver Slow, with editorial input from Storm Tiv and Elise T.A. Degusset. APA Charles' work is supported by the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, or CEDA, the Open Societies Foundation, and the Hans Seidel Foundation. This series is part of APA Charles' podcast channel, Advocate, which addresses some of the most important human rights developments in Southeast Asia. Please listen, share, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Future episodes of this podcast series will be available in the coming weeks. And for more information about APHR's work, please visit our website, asianmp.org. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.